have you ever tried to stop a bad habit? Stopping a bad habit can be incredibly frustrating. And what's frustrating about stopping a bad habit is that you can know that you need to stop it. You can know why you need to stop it. You can even know the steps that you need to take to stop it and still not stop it. That you can have all of the rationalizations correct. You can have all of the information correct. You can have all of the justification correct and still find out that you're struggling to stop the habit that you know is unhealthy for you or that you know is taking you in a direction that you would rather not be. For me, it's eating after 9 o'clock. Okay, so like I can make it most days with a small breakfast. Like, usually my breakfast consists of a cup of coffee and a banana. Like that, That's my go-to for breakfast. And honestly, I can make it with a pretty moderate lunch and a pretty moderate dinner. But there is something about me that come about 9 o'clock at night, which is like the worst time of day to consume calories. Like there's something about me. I'm ravenous. Like I can't eat enough. I usually settle for hummus and maybe some carrots or wheat thins or whatever. But like honestly, if I had the resources and I believed that I could handle it, I would eat a T-bone steak and potato every night at 9 o'clock. I'm, I'm ravenous. And I'll go through the day and I'll think, tonight, tonight I'm going to win. Like, I have this little football coach that's inside of me that's always coaching me up, always calling me out, always kind of trying to be a drill sergeant. Y'all got something like that going on in you? And so, like, I've got this football coach that's internal, and he's always, like, telling me what a, what a moron I am and what a loser I am, that I'm, that I'm going to get hungry again. But this day, this day I'm going to be better. This day I'm going to do different. This day my willpower is going to be stronger. And then come 9 o'clock, like, I'm, I'm so hungry. I just want to eat. I just want to consume. And I know, I know that it's going to disrupt my sleep patterns. I know that it's going to cause weight gain. I know that it's going to, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a, disable me from being able to burn calories. That I, I, I know all of those things. I have all of the rationalizations correct. I have all of the information that a person needs. And yet still, that's not enough for me. That's not, and I would like to consider myself a rational person, but there's this irrational part of my life that I can't fix. I've talked with enough people that have tried to quit smoking and enough people that have tried to stop watching so much TV, enough people that want to wake up earlier and read their Bibles that I know that I'm not the only one that struggles with this. That we have all of the right information, but what we find out is we find out that, the, that rationalization is not enough. That, that living rationally is not sufficient for the human mind regardless of how badly we want to consider ourselves to be totally rational people. That, that in fact, what we need, what we need is not just a change of thought patterns. What we need is not just more information. You know, like that's the new parenting thing, right? Like if I can just give my kids all the information, the right information is going to lead to the right decisions. But what's the problem? The problem is, is that information rational as it may be, true as it may be, helpful as it may be, doesn't change what I want. It doesn't change my desires. It, it doesn't change, in other words, the way we might frame this up in the language of the Scripture, particularly in the language of Deuteronomy, is that information, rationalization, doesn't change my heart. That, that if I really want to lead to a change in behavior, if I really want to lead, live in a change, of, uh, a change of lifestyle, if I really want to change the things that I do, then I'm going to have to change what I want. And the only way to really change what I want 
is to change my heart. And so that's what's at the forefront in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So, so in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and really up to the first 11 verses of chapter 10, Moses is recounting Israel's experience with God. Specifically, Moses is recounting that, uh, that Israel has been incredibly unfaithful to God that they've sinned against God, that they've made a golden calf, that they, that they sinned against God at every turn that they had, that they took every opportunity to be disobedient to the ways of the Lord, to disobey the commands that he had, to not walk in his ways, to not walk in his statutes, and that repeatedly, in spite of their unfaithfulness, that God's faithfulness had been unwavering. That in spite of their unfaithfulness, God had provided for them, and God had protected them, and God had delivered them. In fact, not only had God done all of those things, but God had, for, God had, had brought grace into their life that he had not abandoned them, even though they had abandoned him. And so the call of Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 12, is, is how are you going to respond as the children of Israel that have experienced kindness like this? How are you going to respond when you have received a love so great, when you have seen a God so powerful, when you have witnessed a covenant that has been so gracious and merciful and totally one-sided? And I think that what you could really see Moses do it is he's unpacking what it means for Israel to live in relationship with their God. What it means that they would have this wonderful, powerful, benevolent, kind, gracious, merciful God. That they would be so unfaithful, so far short of his glory, so far short of his honor, so far short of his name. And how you can bring those things together in a relationship. And I think that helps us see the same thing. How God lives in relationship with his people. How God lived in relationship with his people in Deuteronomy is no different than how God lives in relationship with his people today. So what I want to do is I want to see three things about what it looks like to live in relationship with God. The first thing that I want you to see is that he requires us entirely. I use the word require because it uses, the Bible uses the word require. Let's look at verse 12 together. It says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And I love the way that it frames it up here. It frames it up as though this is the only rational response. Having experienced the kindness of God, having received the goodness of God, having been forgiven by God and delivered by God and provided for by God, having done all of that, well, but what does the, God, what does the Lord of your God require of you except that you fear him, that you walk in his ways, that you that you love him. But what we have to understand is that God does have requirements of us if we're going to live in relationship with him. He has requirements of us. He has his conditions that is that we are responsible to living up to in our side of the relationship to God. And it's a side that we can see Israel continually failing miserably at. And probably, if you're honest, it's conditions that you and I are failing miserably at. The first two things that I really want to point out is that, and this is really what the whole passage focuses around, are two attitudes of the heart. Two attitudes of the heart. First, you'll notice the attitude one is to fear the Lord your God. To fear the Lord your God. So when we talk about fearing the Lord, that's really abstract to most of us. That's really confusing to most of us. We don't often want to think about our relationship with God as being a relationship of fear. So what's he talking about? He's talking about reverence. 
It's talking about having an awe of the Lord, to be having a wonder to the Lord. It's to recognize, in other words, that there is no one greater than the Lord, that there is no one beyond the Lord. There is no one mightier than the Lord. There is no one more worthy of your allegiance than the Lord. There is no one else ultimately that you are answerable to and accountable to except the Lord. It's to recognize that if you take the vastness of the galaxies, if you take the power of a thousand hurricanes, if you take all of the, the sovereignty and, the, and the, the ferocity of the mightiest militaries, that in the Lord all of this vastness and all of this might and all of this ferocity is consolidated into a single person. And it's to provoke you so that in his presence there would be trembling. So that in his presence, you would recognize that there is no one greater. That, so, so that in your life, you wouldn't be tempted to, to elevate other things and other parts of creation, other desires to the throne of your heart where only the Lord is worthy to come. And to recognize that one day, one day, every single one of you will give an account of your life to him. There's a second heart attitude that it calls us to, and that is to love, to love. And when we think about love, we're thinking about our affections for God, our desires for God, our devotion for God, our passion for God, our energy for God, our zeal for God. It's to recognize if, if uh, the fear of the Lord is to recognize the vastness, the ferocity of the Lord, then the love, our love for God is the recognition of how wonderful he is, how, how desirable he is how kind he is, how merciful and gracious it is. To love the Lord is to desire to be with him wherever he is. It's to desire to go with him wherever he goes. It's the desire to do for him whatever you know would please him because you have found your pleasure in him. You have found your desire in him. You have found refuge in him and finding pleasure and desire and refuge. You want to go and hide yourself. But now here's what I want you to see, and this is what I think is the main point, is that if you take these two attitudes, what we should not see them as is we should not see them as being competing attitudes. I think that's how we would typically think of fear and love. We would think fear and love would compete with one another, that I can't love what I fear or fear what I love, that, that these would be contrasting attitudes. But these are not competing. These are complementary. They're complementary. They're intended, in other words, our fear of the Lord is intended to increase our love for the Lord. And our love for the Lord is intended to increase our fear of the Lord. That there's a relationship between these two hard attitudes that is intended to help us expand and explain and understand the other. That, our, that the, our fear for the Lord helps us to understand and find justification for our love of the Lord. And our love for the Lord helps to expand and enhance our understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. Here's what I mean. I think it would be helpful maybe to, to see this illustrated in a story. Okay, so I can remember a couple of different stories growing up. One of the things that sticks out in my mind is I can remember this one day. My dad was, he was building a dog pen out back. And so we, we live in the woods in the middle of nowhere, you know, Rabbit Town, USA, baby. And he, would ta he was taking the, the post hole diggers. And I was out there, you know, not really doing anything. But my dad didn't have his shirt on and I didn't have my shirt on. And we were just being men together, you know. I was probably seven or eight, maybe about Gracie's age. 
And I can remember at one point my dad takes the post hole diggers and he sinks them into the ground and he picks up and, and, and realizes that he's dug up a yellow jacket's nest. All right, and so immediately my dad starts getting stung, and he and he's running, and, and you know I'm disoriented. I'm not really even sure what's going on, but my dad he's running, and he picks me up, and in one arm he's running with me like a football, right? And we get out, and we get away from them, and he's he's obviously got red marks all over him where he has just been flat lit up, but he's not even acknowledging that. He's looking at me. He's going over me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, and he's saying, are you okay? Are you okay, son? Are you okay? And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at this man, and I'm like, this guy just took on bees, man. This guy just took on bees. You don't take on bees and win. This cat just took on bees. Not only that, but he swooped me up in one arm and ran with me like he was Herschel Walker. And I remember just being there and just being awestruck. My dad was the toughest dude I knew. My dad was, was one who, was, who the bees could come up against and bees didn't win. Because when you're eight years old, is there anything worse than a bee? But, but the bees couldn't, didn't slow him down. They didn't scare him. In fact, he was covered in stings and he wasn't even worried about his own stings. He was worried about me and I, I ended up not being stung at all. And so something happened. In a moment, in a moment, I realized two things. First of all, my dad was tough. My dad was ferocious. My, my dad could go against things that I couldn't even conceive of, and my dad could come out and he could win. He could show that it would not take him down, that it would not slow him down. But as ferocious as he was, as much as I was in awe of that, as much as it, as it caused me to realize that my dad was not one to be trifled with, as much as it caused me to realize that my dad was far tougher than I realized, far stronger than I could conceive of, at the same time, I realized, but he was for me. He was in my corner. All of this strength and all of this might and all of this toughness and all of this ferocity was on my side. This was my dad. And so on one hand, my, my awe and my reverence for my dad was, was elevated. But as my awe and reverence for my dad was elevated, so was my passion for him. So was my love for him. So was my admiration for him. So was my affection for him. See how they're complimentary? See how they're complimentary? You can think of another instance with my dad. Uh, my dad used to be a volunteer fire, fireman, and my mom worked second shift. And so uh, Jordan, my, my middle sister, and I, we would stay with my dad while my mom worked. And so if my dad was going to do any kind of activities, he pretty much just had to take us along for the ride with him, you know. And we were usually happy to go because, you know, we didn't get out of the house a whole lot, so getting out of the house was pretty awesome. And I remember that he had, like, a, a meeting at the volunteer fire department, and nobody else had their kids with him bless his heart, you know, like having kids now, I realize how, you know, challenging that must have been, but nobody, none of the other men are there, all the other men are getting away from their families, all the other men are getting away from their kids, and there's my dad, and he's coming to do his duty, but he's, he's showing up, and he's got these two kids with him, and we're sitting there, and we're listening, and I can remember that one of the other men there made kind of a, a wisecrack or a snide remark about my dad's kids, about us about him bringing us, about, and I thought, 
man, dang, don't come after my dad. And you know what my dad did? He stood up. He got eyeball to eyeball with that man. And he said, I'll let you talk about a lot of things. You can say whatever you want to say about me. You can say whatever you want to say about what, but you will never speak about my children. And I went, whoa. <laughs> That's right, it's my daddy. You know what I'm saying? And I realized that my dad would not stand for injustice. I realized that my dad would not stand for someone to come up against those that were vulnerable. I realized that my dad would not let it be okay that you would come and, and speak against the ones that he loved so devotedly and, and served so sacrificially. It was not going to happen. And I saw him, and I knew it. I knew in an instant that if, if, I, was, if I was unjust, if, if, if I spoke in a way that compromised my integrity, I would face the same judgment. I would have the same conversation with him. And so my, my reverence for him, my awe of him, my, my wonder for him was, was increased. But there, there he was. There he was. And he was standing in front of me. He was standing in front of me. And so as much as his might, as much as his, as his ferocity, as much as, his, as, as, his, as his, his passion stood up for me, I was there and I was amazed. And I, it, it increased my, my love for him. See, fear and love in relationships are not exclusive. They can be complementary. This is what it means to live in a relationship with the living God. This is what it means to live in a relationship with the living God. To, to, to come into greater and greater comprehension of his vastness. Greater and greater comprehension of your accountability to him. Greater and greater comprehension of his holiness and your answerability to your lack of holiness. And at the same time, to come into greater and greater comprehension of his goodness and of his mercy and of his, of his kindness and of his, of his zeal and of his protection and of his provision. So it brings those things together. And these two attitudes of the heart elevate your relationship with the Lord. And see, what happens is, and that's what you see here uh, in verses 12 and 13, is that the right attitudes, the right attitudes are expected to produce in you the right actions. The right attitudes are expected to produce in you the right, the right actions. Look at what he says. He says, what does the Lord require of you? Not just to fear the Lord, but to fear the Lord and to walk in all his ways. Not just to love him, but to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. He says, he says look, you're, you're to have these attitudes. You're to fear the Lord and to love the Lord. But if you fear the Lord and if you love the Lord, if these things are true, then you will serve the Lord. You will devote your life to him. You will obey the Lord. Your attitudes will leak out into your life, into action, so that now the activity of your life elevates the name of the Lord that you love so committedly. You see, what the call is, is the call is to love God in response to the way God has loved you. How has God loved you? God hasn't just loved you in theory. God hasn't just loved you as an idea. God has loved you in real life. God has loved, had loved Israel by delivering them, by providing for them, by forgiving them. By, and then now he's going to bring them in and give them the promised land. God had loved them with real actions. 
And so now, from the inward to the outward, from what you, what you know inwardly in your attitudes to how you live outwardly in your activity, the whole of who you are from the top of your head to the, to the soles of your feet, you are to offer up your life and you are to live for the Lord and you are to love the Lord in action, in activity, in devotion, in passion. You see, fear without walking in the ways of the Lord, disobedient fear, Disobedient fear is nothing more than lip service. It's pandering. It's politicking. It's saying what you think God wants to hear or what you think others ought to hear so that they might think more highly of you than they ought. To, to, to say that you love without obeying is nothing more than wishful thinking. It's not reality. In fact, you know what I think we can say? And I think this is the application of this, this particular point. If you find yourself having difficulty obeying the Lord, if you find yourself having difficulty walking in His ways and and pursuing a holy life and honoring Him in purity and honoring Him with your speech and honoring Him with your job and honoring Him with your family, do you know what you need to focus on doing? On loving Him. You You need to provoke yourself to deeper love of God. You need to go deeper in the Scripture. You need to go deeper in relationships. You need to go deeper in study, deeper in prayer, leaning into the relationships that you have with the Lord because the more that you love the Lord, the more that you will obey the Lord. It's also true if, you're, if you love the Lord. If you find yourself passionate about the Lord, zealous about the Lord, and you you find yourself provoked up to to worship the Lord, what's the best way for you to express your love for the Lord? It's to obey the Lord. To obey the Lord. That this is to create a cycle in our lives of loving and obedience. That I love the Lord, and because I love the Lord, I obey the Lord. And because I obey the Lord, it increases my love for the Lord. And as it increases my love for the Lord, it increases my obedience for the Lord. See, this was given to a community of people. You understand that? This was given to the whole of Israel. They were to spur one another on to good works. They were to contribute to one another's faith in the Lord. So there's another way for us to think about it. This is the, one of the primary purposes of the New Testament church. That one of the primary reasons that we gather together is that we would stir one another up to love the Lord even more. To be more passionate about God. To be more devout about God. To be energized in our walk with the Lord. That we might go and walk in greater obedience. And it's to call one another to obedience. And so one of the primary ways that if you're having trouble obeying and loving the Lord is to lean into the local church, to come and to hear God's word preached, to come and hear God's word sang, to be a part of a connection group where, where you have a group of people that are, are growing in the word. So right now in your life, in your life, is there a lack of obedience? Is there a lack of passion? Is there a lack of love? Because in your relationship with the living God, this is required of you. This is required of you. That brings us to the second, the second uh, part of a relationship with God, and that is that he loves us freely. He loves us freely. Look at what it says there in verse 14. I think this is so cool. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. You know what that verse is talking about? The verse is talking about the freedom of God. The freedom of God. That, that, that God is actually free. God is entirely free. 
He owns everything. In fact, if you look at verse 17 there, it says that he is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all peoples. He is the sovereign above every sovereign. That there is nothing that he doesn't own. He owns the heaven, and he owns the heaven of heavens, and then he owns the earth, and he owns all that is in the earth. Y'all, I think that pretty much covers it, right? The human pursuit, the human pursuit has been for freedom. The human pursuit has been from, for, auto, for our autonomy from the beginning. We like the illusion that we are the ones that are in control of our lives. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Why was it that they were tempted to eat the fruit? It was that they might be free from God. That they would have the knowledge that God has. That they would have the position that God has. That they would have the freedom that only God has. Why is it that we're tempted to overwork? We're tempted to overwork because we think it'll raise our standing in our boss's eyes or it'll increase our financial, uh, our financial position. In other words, we do it so that we might have freedom. Why, why is it that we're tempted to be lazy? We're tempted to be lazy because we want to do what we want to do. In other words, our laziness is rooted in our desire for freedom. Why is it that we might, have, uh, might get struggle with alcoholism. You know what alcoholism? Alcoholism is, is a, it's a pursuit of freedom. It's a, a pursuit to, to leave behind our circumstances and to leave behind our difficulties and to a, escape from this life into another life, to escape from being this person and to become another person. So what is it? It's a pursuit of freedom. If you look at all the desires in your life, in fact, if you look at all the sins in your life and all the things that you, you battle and struggle with, I bet that you could say that you could melt all of them down to some form of a pursuit of freedom. Except, are we actually free? Are we actually free? See, I think there's, a, there's some questions that you can ask to determine the level of your freedom. First of all, do you need anything? Do you need anything? You know the truth about us? Regardless of what we think, regardless of what we say, we need. We got serious needs. You have the freedom to quit your job. But guess what? You're going to need another one. You're going to need another one because you got to have food to eat. you got to have a house to live in. you got to be able to provide for your family and provide for yourself. Or, or, or otherwise, you're going to live a life that is beneath what you are desiring to live. So you actually don't have freedom because you have great need in your life. Another question that you can ask is, can you be forced to do things? Can you be forced to do things? Someone who is free can't be forced to do anything. Someone who is totally free, you could, there's no threat that you can hold over them. There's no, there's no way to extort them. There's no way to manipulate them. Well, I, I guarantee you that, that you, with the needs that you have, you, with the weaknesses that you have, you, with the fears that you have, you, with the trepidations that you have, you, with the anxieties that you have, you could be forced to do any number of things. You can be forced to do things that you can't even conceive of, right? Lastly, are, are you accountable to anyone? Are you accountable to anyone? See, all of us are accountable to someone, aren't we? All of us are. Now, now if you were free, you would answer to no one. If you were free, there's no one that would hold any authority over your life. But the truth is, is that all of us who are living and functioning as human beings in a society have bosses that we answer to. We have a government that we answer to. We, we, have, uh, we have perhaps a spouse that we answer to. We have 
a church of pastors that we answer to. And even if we would say, I don't answer to any of those things. I'm my own man. I'm my own boss. I do my own thing. Let me tell you, let me assure you, friend, that there is coming a day in which you will stand before the living God and standing before the living God, you will answer for your life. You will answer for your life. Now ask those questions of God. Ask those questions of God. That's the point of this passage. The, the, the point is, is that God doesn't need anything. God has everything. Verse 17 says that God can't be bribed. He can't be bribed, let alone forced. How do you bribe someone that owns everything? How do you bribe someone that is the ruler of all things? How do you bribe someone that is totally self-sufficient? How do you bribe someone that is totally without need? God is not answerable to anyone. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He reigns above all the sovereigns. He is the sovereign of all sovereigns. He answers to no one. He is totally and entirely free in every sense of the word. A freedom that which we can't even begin to comprehend as human beings. Now this is where I think it gets good. You see, when a person has freedom, that's when you learn about their character. When, when a person has freedom, that's when you learn about who they really are. You, find, you take a man who just inherited life-changing wealth so that he doesn't have to work anymore, and you'll find about, out about who he is. You, you take a woman who is able to retire, and she's able-bodied with, with a, a good income, and you'll find out about who she is. You take a young man or a young woman and you remove them under the roof of, from under the roof of their parents and you place them in the college setting where nobody else is checking up on them and you'll find out about who they are. And here's God, totally free, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the owner of heaven and highest heaven and earth and all the things that are in the earth, totally free. We learn about who he is. Because look at what it says. It says, yet, yet. Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it, yet, yet in his freedom, yet, yet in his decision making, yet not from his need but out of his desire, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. If we were, you can actually translate where it says, yet the Lord set his heart as the Lord set his delight. The Lord delights in love. That in all of his freedom, he can do whatever he wants to do. He can choose to do anything that he desires to do. And do you know what God does in his freedom? He saves. Do you know what God does with all of his resources? He shows compassion. He shows kindness. The freedom of God highlights the goodness of God. The freedom of God punctuates the glory of God. That God can have done with us whatever God desired to do with us. That God can do with us still whatever he desires to do with us. But it is in his character. It is in his nature. It is in his design. It is in his plan that in his freedom, with his resources, he will save. He will save. It gets even better. It gets even better. Look at what it says. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring above them, you above all peoples. Now this is building on something that he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, um, I believe it's verses 7 and 8. In other words, what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, he says, Do you think that I chose you because you're a great nation? I chose you because you're the smallest of all nations. 
I, I chose you, in other words, because you're the puniest of them all. I, I chose you because you brought nothing to the table. I chose you because you brought no value to me. I, I chose you because nobody could look at you and think you were great. So of all the gods, I am the greatest of the gods. Of all the nations, you are the smallest of the nations. And yet out of all the gods and all the nations, I choose you. I want you. I desire you. See, there's all of this this discussion and this debate about the sovereignty of God and salvation, but we miss the point, y'all. We miss the point. All of the, the discussion is about, am I free? Can I choose? Am I, do I have the freedom to make the de decisions that I want? And I'm not even saying those are unworthy conversations, but what I'm saying is, is that we're missing the main point. The main point is that the glory is not in, with all of my freedom, I choose God. The glory is in God's incomprehensible freedom, in God's unmatched freedom, in God's true freedom. He chose me. He chose us. Of all the gods, he is the greatest God. Of all the people, I am the least of sinners. And God has set his love on me. God has delighted his love on me. That was the point for Israel. And that's the point for us. That God had the freedom to do whatever he desired to do. And what he desired to do was to save you. What he desired to do was to love you. God had everything and didn't need anything, and yet he wanted you. Nothing could be his that wasn't his, and yet he wanted you. This is to be the defining identity of the children of God. They were to go into the promised land and say, I can face any enemy. I can face any army. I can face any nation. I can face any hardship. I can receive all of the gifts that God has given to me because our God has defined my reality, not by the weakness of myself, not by the weakness of my flesh, not by the puniness of our nation, but by the might of his name, by the glory of his name. He stands with me. He goes before me. He is my God, and we are his people. And that's your identity. That's your identity. That's why you can face whatever this world throws at you. That's why you can face whatever they're doing to you at school. That's why you can face whatever you're facing at work. That's why you can go to, go to, uh, to work and, and not be sure of your job and still not live anxious and worried because you have a new identity in God. He has chosen you as a son or as a daughter. Of all the gods, he is the greatest God. Of all the people, you are the smallest people, but God has set his love on you. He is delighted to love you, and now he stands behind you. He goes before you, and he is yours. So now the question is, how will we respond? How will we respond to the requirements of God? And how will we respond to the free love of God? Right? How will we respond to the requirements of God? And how will we respond to the freely given love of God? And by the way, brothers and sisters, do you see here the presentation of the gospel in Deuteronomy chapter 10? Do you see the presentation of the gospel right here? Now, what the way that we typically respond is totally irrational. Look at what he says. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Be no longer stubborn. That means that right now what I see in you is stubbornness. 
the, the, there's actually an image right there of, of an, an ox or of a, a donkey, and it's, it's muzzled, and the, the, the farmer is trying to plow his field, but the, every time the, the farmer tries to take the ox this way, the ox wants to go that way, and it's always fighting against the way of the farmer and, and resisting the farmer and, and trying to go its own way. And it's natural for us to respond to God this way, but it's totally irrational. It makes no sense that we have a God that has shown us such love. We have a God that is so fearsome, so, so worthy of our love. And we see all of that. And our response is, is that, no, nah, I think I'll keep walking uphill. No, I think I'll keep trying to figure this out my own way. No, I think I'll keep trying to swim upstream. I know what you want, Lord, but I'm going to follow my own heart. I'm going to follow my heart. Following my heart makes me happy. I, I know that, Lord, you are the God of gods and the Lord of all lords. But, Lord, I want to be in control of my life. I want to assert my independence. I want to assert my own freedom. I want to do all of that for me. And so you know what we do? We pull against the Lord. We pull against the Lord. We stiffen our necks and we pull against the Lord. And we wear ourselves out. We become overwhelmed. And we become anxious because we're trying to be strong enough to go our own way and to do our own thing and to match our own strength. We're trying to figure this out all on our own. And this is exactly the kind of stubbornness that Jesus is offering you rest from in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy uh, my, my, and my burden is light. That, that it's not like the world where you're always upstream, always walking uphill. No, you yoke yourself to me and I will provide the strength. You yoke yourself for, to me and I will provide the relief. You yoke yourself to me and it's the only rational response. See, what's rational is to take your heart and to offer it to the Lord. That's what he means by circumcising the foreskin of your heart. It means to, to, the, the circumcision for the people of God was to mark them. It was to, to set them aside as the people of God, as those that, that were the recipients of the kindness of God, recipients of the covenant with God. And, and so it was the idea of cutting away the waste that, that you might be offered entirely, totally to the Lord. And so what he's saying is, no, 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 I'm not concerned so much with externals. I'm not just concerned with behavior. I'm not just concerned with what you do. I'm concerned with who you are, that what I'm looking for is all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength, that what I'm looking for is not just a body that is set aside for me. What I'm looking for is a heart that is set aside for me, a heart that is given over to me. Now, the hard part about that is it's impossible. It's impossible. So the other way was natural but irrational. This way is rational but impossible. Because go ahead, you circumcise your heart. Do it. I'll, I'll sit here and wait. I'll hang out for a minute while you circumcise your hearts. While you take and you cut away all the stuff that is self. While you cut away all the things that are evil. While you perform heart surgery on yourself, I'll hang out and wait for a minute. But you see, it was impossible. It was not, you were not capable of circumcising your heart and offering it up to the Lord. This passage is calling for something that only the Spirit of God can do. 
This passage is, in essence, revealing even then to the children of Israel that the Old Covenant had to become obsolete because the Old Covenant could not hang under the weight of the requirements of God, that God required all of your heart. God required you to fear Him totally and to love Him entirely. He required you not just to mark your body, but to mark your heart and to offer it up. And these are rational responses to the goodness of God, but they are impossible ones. But Christ came. Christ came that your heart might be changed, that your Nature might be made new, that that which you cannot change yourself, he might change on your behalf so that now something supernatural takes place. That's what it's talking about in Colossians chapter 2 when it says, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcised made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, ra- what is rational has become reality because that which is rational to respond to God has been worked in you through the Spirit of God so that now you are able to do that which you ordinarily can't do, and that is to give all of your heart, all of your life down on the altar for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Over the last few weeks, so many of you have told me that God has been working, in, working on your heart and working in your life and dealing with you. I bet that some of you are even now uh, thinking of how maybe how the Lord has been drawing you to salvation, how you know that you have not been saved, you have not responded to the Lord, and you can sense in you the Lord calling you to give, you, give Him all of your life. For some of you, the Lord has been calling you to, to go and to repent of sins, to, that you've had these areas in your life of unfaithfulness, and they're committed unfaithfulness, and they're patterns of, of unfaithfulness, and the Lord is calling you to come and to lay those things down before Him. For some of you, the Lord is calling you to take new steps in ministry and to begin serving Him with new fervor and pursuing Him with greater passion and pursuing Him with greater passion to go and to glorify Him in new ways. And here's what I want you to see, brothers and sisters. Here's what I want you to see. If you sense the Lord stirring in you, if the Lord is drawing you to salvation, if the Lord is convicting you of sin, if the Lord is calling you forward in, in, in ministry, that is miraculous, That is miraculous. That is a miraculous work of the living God. Fear Him. Love Him. Obey Him. Submit to Him. Come, walk in the love that He has offered to you. But don't, 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 don't go another second, another second apart from what He is calling you to do. It is no small work. It is no small thing that the Spirit of the living God would work in your life, in your heart. The question is, the question is, as the Spirit responds, how will you, as the Spirit moves, how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you continue to do that which is irrational in your own stubbornness? Or will you come and submit and surrender to the work of the Spirit of God in your life and do that which is supernatural and totally rational? Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.